Welcome to the Haber Show. This week with NBCSN showing some Olympic basketball classics, we're going to talk dream team with my guy Chris Mullen. Mully is an NBA Hall of Famer, Warriors all-time great, who is also the NBC Sports Bay Area pregame and postgame analyst. He also played on the 92 Dream Team in Barcelona, who won gold against Croatia. And that game is actually airing Wednesday night, April 22nd at 9 p.m. Eastern as part of a two-day series of Olympic basketball classics on the men's and women's side. With Molly, we're going to go down memory lane on Michael Jordan, what he remembers about being in Monte Carlo and Barcelona with the Dream Team, whether LeBron or Kobe's Olympic teams could beat theirs in 92. Molly also makes his pick whether the 96 Bulls would beat the 2017 Warriors with Kevin Durant. And Molly also shares the craziest sports Zoom meeting ever during quarantine. Can't wait for you to hear about that. So a uh, super fun conversation that's also on video. If you want to check out our quarantine beards, you might not want to see it, but mine definitely don't, but definitely Mullins. I've never seen him with facial hair. So it's a treat. Without further ado, let's get to it with Chris Mullen. I am here in Charlotte, North Carolina. It is a Tuesday, and I'm really excited about what NBC Sports Network, NBCSN is doing this week. It's showing some old school classics from Team USA. Uh, They're going to kick things off with the men's basketball team, the dream team in 92. And I'm super excited to have on my guy, uh, Mully, Chris Mullen on the show today. What's going on, Mully? Tom, how are you, man? My pleasure to be here. Hope everyone's well and safe by you. And uh, look forward to a little distraction and uh, you can test my memory. It's quite a long time. We're doing a Zoom right now, and I did the I did the password for the Zoom. Your high school, what was it? Zavarian. Uh, yeah, you did some good research. <laughs> I thought you'd like that. That was uh, in in Brooklyn. Was that where you? Correct. Yeah, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. And actually, I I went there for a year and a half. I started my high school uh, in in Manhattan at Powell Memorial Academy, and then uh, finished up in Zavarian out in Brooklyn. Yep. Have you been uh, getting? I don't know. This beard has been going for a while. It hasn't been the full the full lockdown beard, but I see this is the first time I've ever seen facial hair on you, Chris. Yeah, it's funny. I don't do it often. Shoot, the last time I did it actually was a long time ago when I was in rehab. <laughs> you didn't do the mustache thing very much, did you? Well, you know what? I hate the feeling here and there. So I kind of I don't know if it's a beard or not. I just kind of <laughs> a little lazy and uh but the last time I grew a beard, it came in red. So that's changed. <laughs> I got a little bit of gray here, but yeah. I'm still I'm still keeping the brown so far so good. Losing it up top, Mo. You always had a good head of hair. Just give it time. <laughs> so um, I got to ask, you watching this last dance thing from Sunday night? Did you get a chance to watch that? I actually did watch watch the whole both I, both episodes. I sat down. Um, yeah, it kept me captivated. I, I enjoyed it. What's it like watching it? Because you lived a lot of that. You were there. Uh, you know, playing against these dudes for those years. And we'll get into it later, but the 84 dream or the 84 uh, Olympic team, you were on that with, with Michael. So like, what was it like watching? Were there things that you, you didn't know about that you're like, Oh, that, that was awesome. Yeah. I, a lot of the uh, behind the scenes, as far as the business stuff, I didn't know that was going on. We didn't have as much um, obviously social media where everything was public knowledge um, so that whole deal with Scotty, um, you know, and, and the friction they had with, within the front office and the team, I wasn't really up on all of that. Um, 
we were more focused on and concerned about playing against them. We really didn't care what they, <laughs> they, what they were going through. <laughs> Your first introduction to Michael was, I'm guessing, 84? Actually, uh, the, the um, summer before we went to college. So Patrick, myself, and Michael, Bill Wennington, a whole, bu- a whole bunch of those guys, we came out of high school together. So we all played in the McDonald's All-American game prior to starting college. And then obviously in college, I played against Patrick a lot at Georgetown. <laughs> and we played North Carolina twice, actually. Michael's fresh uh, sophomore year, we played them opening the, to open the season. And then our junior years, we played the Garden, just, just a single game at the Garden. Um, Did you know him as Mike or Michael? I knew him as a freak athlete that was a nasty basketball player. I know that. I remember one, um, you know, those, those all-star games, you're always doing, you know, the, the basketball is very secondary. You're doing all these different appearances and, and hanging out or whatever. And we had, like, one early morning practice and – you know, we all stroll in there, kind of sitting on the bench, waiting just, you know, get some shots up. And this guy's out there going 94 feet, you know, crazy energy, dunking all the balls. We're like, man, this guy's insane. And that was him. You, you were known for your work ethic. So you, you let Michael show you up on the work ethic side? He's getting in the gym before you? Yeah, work, work ethic and, and, and speed and dunking, they're two different things. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't necessarily working hard. He was just better than everybody. Yeah, he was inc- – I mean, I've – I was blown away by that, the highlights of uh, the 63 game against the Celtics. I mean, the stuff he was doing was just I, – I, it kind of felt like he was in a time machine, player from a future world that was coming in and was just playing faster, quicker, stronger than anybody. And, and it, even on that ridiculous Celtics team against them, it was just, what do you do with this guy? No question. Um, and like you said, so – his three years of college, obviously, you know, he made that big shot to win the national championship as a freshman and followed up with two incredible seasons after that. But 84 Olympics, you think about it, he exploded that summer, you know, on, on the international national scene because of the Olympics. And that's what Bob Knight as the coach. Yep. You, Patrick, who else was on that team? There was uh, – Wayman Tisdale. Wayman Tisdale, yep. Vern Fleming, Leon Wood. And you were the second highest scorer on that team. So you, you're, sharing the, you're sharing the rock with, with Michael. Yeah. And look, much, much like when he played at Carolina, it was, you know, it was a totally different game, but it was all about moving the ball. You know, internationally back then, we played against a lot of zones. But Michael went from there, obviously, you know, to his rookie year. But just you mentioned that 63-point game. That was just really a year and a half later, two years later. And now, like you said, I, I watched that game the other day. With, uh, with that documentary, I remember sitting watching. I was just like, whoa, this is insane. Like, I, I knew he was great, but to do it against that team. Yeah. And they were a great, great team. That team was loaded. And like you said, he was moving faster. You know, he was making incredible plays, awesome shots, you know, between the legs three times and making it look easy. And look, yeah. looked like everyone else was in slow motion. And those, I've always seen the baseline shot of that, like the baseline camera angle for that, that through the legs, the thing he did against Bird. But it was cool to just see, like, all the other stuff he was doing in that game mixed to LL Cool J. It was, it was awesome. But you, you, you must have been – I don't know. The era that you guys played in, it was usually dominated by bigs, or at least the NBA was dominated by bigs. You know, Hakeem – Will, Kareem, Patrick, like all these you – know, David Robinson was awesome too. But, like, you guys were guards, and it wasn't, it wasn't 
really a thing for guards to dominate at that point. Even Magic was huge. Oscar Robertson was huge. So, like, uh, what was that like when Michael and you and, uh, you know, others were trying to make your way into the league, averaging 25 a game as a guard? It just wasn't – it wasn't a guard's game at that point. Yeah. So, the spacing was totally – if you watch, you know, when, when, when uh, plays fed the post, everyone came inside the three-point line to get closer. Yeah. Right? You didn't see many guys move backing out to space the floor to shoot deep threes, which, you know, helps the defense, really. Yeah, and it was always bigs on the floor. So the, the middle's clogged up both offensively and defensively. But it was truly like an inside-out. Everyone says play inside-out. That's what it was. You always threw the ball in the post at least once to see if there would be a double team. Yeah. If that, you know, you can, you know, that player could take his man one-on-one or, or draw a double team or draw a foul. Yeah, so it's with the emergence of the three-point shot, just the way guys go off the dribble, you know, so so easy now. It's the game just – it's almost a dis- different sport. Yeah, I mean, I did a big story this week just researching who would win the 96 Bulls or the 2017 Warriors. And researching this and just looking at, you know, what the league was like in the mid-'90s versus now, as one coach told me, and the same thing you just said is, it's a different sport, uh, straight up. It's a different sport. Um, and so it was really hard to compare the two eras with the hand-checking rules, with the three-point shot and the, the illegal defense rules. Uh, Patrick Riley told me once, you know, you would just park two guys in the parking lot on one side of the floor, and then you would on the other side, you put on the strong side, you would just play three-on-three three or one-on-one. You don't see all that much of that now in today's game because of the different legal defense rules. Uh, but what is your take? Um, on 96 Bulls, so that's Dennis Rodman. It's not the 98 that the last dance is, but 96 Bulls versus 2017 Warriors. And I know you might be biased here, but you did play with Michael a few times. So what's your take? In a seven-game series, I'll put it this way, hand-checking allowed, Mully, illegal defense rules of of modern day where defensive three seconds, you can't camp out in the lane. But there's no parking lot where you're just parking guys in the corner and just playing one-on-one. That's with Durant? With Durant. With Durant. So they win 73 games, then they go lose the finals to the Cavs in 2016, then they get Kevin Durant. So 73-win team, add Kevin Durant against that 96 Bulls team that went 72-10. and 10. Yeah, I go, I go with the Warriors on that one. Just, just because of the offensive firepower. And I think that's if, – If Michael was sitting right next to me, Molly, would you say the same thing? I would. I would. Because wow. it's, it's really not about Michael and Scotty. Those, those guys will handle that business. And they'd probably be able to, you know, really, I don't know about shut down, but really make it tough for Steph and Clay, right? They'd yeah. probably put, put Scotty on Steph. You know, Phil Jackson's philosophy was cut the head of the snake off. So that would be a, that would be a, a long series for Steph. Yeah, Michael, but like Mike, take- Michael and Harper could hound Clay. Now, Hounding and stopping are two different things, you know. But with Durant, you know, you're talking about arguably, you know, the, the top offensive player. When it's all said and done, he's going to be up there all time. So you're taking Scott. See, I, I could not decide how I would want to guard the Warriors. Because if you put Ron Harper on Steph, at that point, I don't think Ron Harper is going to be able to move as well in order to stay in front of Steph. So then you're like, all right, well, then maybe – you do Ron Harper for three quarters, and then you switch MJ or or Scott. All, all three are going to get a piece of them, but yeah. But then, like, if you take Scotty off and put him on Steph, then who's going to guard KD? And maybe it doesn't matter who guards KD because he's going to get four. Right. So that's why I'm saying the Warriors. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I mean, they got Draymond, they got uh, Clay, they got KD and Steph. Don't forget about Andre Iguodala, who Steve Kerr told me he's like the modern day version of Pippen, where he's just so smart defensively and so long and athletic. And that's just a luxury to have Andre Iguodala. But like, it's so hard, Molly, to like say, I'm not going to go with Jordan. Like, I'm not going to go with MJ when he was 6-0 in the finals. Now, as you know, he did lose to the, to the Pistons earlier than the finals a bunch of times. And, of course, the Celtics, as you saw the other night. But it's so hard to get bet against MJ. Yeah, and I think, you know, if, if it happened in real time and you actually said that, he'd probably win somehow. He'd get so pissed off and, <laughs> and make it happen. Probably the best person to ask would be Steve. And he'd have, he'd have to say the Warriors, I think, because he's with them now. But he'd, he'd have an incredible insight on, you know, matchups and – I just th- I just think you know with Durant the other team without Durant I would go with the Bulls mm. with, with Durant man that's a whole that's a whole different stratosphere you know it's like now, ta- that's like taking you know the Bulls the '96 Bulls and taking the best player other than Michael whoever was at that I don't know who whoever was at that time and plugging Chris, it, in Chris it was Chris Mullen it was Chris Mullen no, Charles Barkley whoever it might be <laughs> take the best player and plug them on the Bulls. Yeah, it's crazy. And the depth for the Warriors, I mean, they had four all-stars, and then you add Andre Iguodala, obviously an all-star, not in his prime, but a lot of depth. The three-point shot, it would be alien. It would be alien to the Bulls. I mean, you're talking about a team that during their, their postseason run that year, the most that a team had ever taken against them in a game was 27 threes. And the Warriors, like, averaged 30, like 35 threes. I mean, this was a team that – on a bad night, they're, they're taking 26 three-pointers. Just the, the volume of three-pointers and how deep they are. Like, it would just be kind of, you know, it's not like you couldn't shoot from 30 feet or you couldn't shoot for 25. It just wasn't thought of as a good shot. And then the thing you would see probably, and what you don't see now, is whoever Steph's guarding, whether it be Michael, Scotty, Harp, they would go right in the post. Yep. And try and try and get one of those good players on the bench with foul trouble. So yep. it, it yep. gets back to the old analytical thing. Well, we'll give up your two. We'll take three. And the, the competitiveness is like I don't want to bet against Jordan because whether it was on the court or whether it was playing cards or whether it was on the golf course, man, he was so competitive. If, if the Warriors beat him in game one, I, I feel like that's almost worse. Sitting here listening listen to you talk about, it. I want to see it. <laughs> I know. Let's make it happen. Let's get 2K or something involved yeah, in the simulation to get this game going. Yeah, simulation for sure. That'd be fun. Now, let's rewind because last dance, they show how Tony Kukoc and Pippen had, and Jerry Krause had a little bit of a sparring because of the fact that Tony Kukoc, who was arguably the best uh, international player coming over to the NBA, but this was kind of the introduction was – 92 Summer Olympics in Barcelona. He's the star, along with Drazen Petrovic, of the Croatian national team. And at this point, he's not on the Bulls yet. I, I think Jerry Krause had drafted him and was saving money so he could give the bag to Tony Kukoc when Scottie Pippen's like, yep, I need a race. I need an extension. I'm making X amount of dollars. I should be getting way more. And yet Jerry Krause would say, Hey, no, Tony Kukoc, I got to save money for him. And it seemed like he was prioritizing a guy who wasn't even on the team, who was this 23-year-old Croatian that the Bulls had never played with. So you guys, you go into this game against Croatia. It was a preliminary round game. 
talk to me about what you remember from that, just going into that game, whether you remember Michael or Scotty were talking about, were they chattering about it? Or was it just this unspoken thing that they just wanted to go right at Tony? Yeah, so all, all the stuff you mentioned, Tom, I don't think I was really privy to the whole recruitment of Tony Kukoc. We understood he was going there, but not the, the details. Contract, yeah. And, and the, the big details that, that Michael and Scotty were feeling. I think Michael was, Michael was taken care of, right? He was going to get – but he was actually, you know, Scotty was his boy, right? That's, that's his running mate. Um, but definitely coming into that game, it was a different intensity. And Michael and Scotty were like – fighting over who was going to shut this guy down and they were going to send a message and he was not going to never mind have a decent game. He wasn't going to be able to move. And, uh, you know, Scott, like- you know, you look at that, the, the documentary and yeah, when you play with Michael Jordan, everybody else is going to be, you know, outshined. But if you talk to anyone that ever played against or, or with Scotty, if you had to prepare from, from a coach, this guy was one of the greatest players of all. He was such a great, great player. He did everything on the basketball court. He was intelligent, incredible defender. There's nothing he didn't do. Um, so he started that game and just was like at the jump ball was in, in Ku Coach's shirt. Yes. And the very know, first play, Molly, was David Robinson tapped it and Charles Barkley got it under the, uh, under the basket and just dunked all over Tony Ku Coach within two seconds. This, the t- and, and then, and then, much like you know, like the modern, like Patrick Beverly, Scotty was at the at the uh, inbound, like in his chest, like everywhere. If he walked to the bench for a timeout, Scotty was following him there. You so said, it, uh, you it, told Jack McCall, who asked you about it for the Dream Team book, legendary writer. You said Scotty and Michael were like rabid dogs on Tony, almost to the point of where they lost sight of the game. Well, they won the game by themselves with their defense. And, you know, the thing about Scotty and Michael at that point in time, obviously Michael was leading the league in scoring, but they were by far the two best perimeter defenders. I mean, with their length, their aggressiveness, their IQ, you know, they could play guys off the dribble. They could chase off screens. They could uh, play 94 feet. And when they turned it on, man, there was nothing like it. They, they were, they were, they were like a bunch of rabid dogs. They were, and they, and they, you were not going to score. And, and do you was, feel bad for Tony? Like this kid was just getting eaten alive by these two like all time greats. I felt great for us. I'm like, man, these guys are <laughs> awesome. These guys are the best. Go get them. <laughs> you had averaged 25 a game that season. All, first team All NBA going into Barcelona. You guys start out in La Hala outside of San Diego. I'm wondering what your mindset is going into this because you're, I mean, you're big time at this point. You're, you're multiple all-star, multiple all-NBA. Uh, you're dropping 25 a night. You're going into this, this summer Olympics team, the dream team, like, like what? Like what is your expectation going into this? Well, the biggest thing was historically it's the first time NBA players are eligible to play. So it's a new experience for everybody. Michael, Patrick, and I played in 1984, so we had some Olympic experience. Most of those guys on the Dream Team had played at some point international basketball, whether it be Olympics yep. or not. But this is different. This is the Olympics for the first time with NBA players. So everyone's kind of not sure what to expect, right? You're going through this for the first time. Um, so the, the hype and the media, all that stuff is just overblown. 
as far as the players go, that was the easy part because, like you said, Tom, I think the biggest thing, everyone was really, really well-established in their careers. Yep. Kind of five, six years in the league and, and up. So there was no um, – The Bird and Magic were kind of on the back end of their careers. Like, Yeah, but they were also the legends, and they were, they were the leaders, right? They were, they were our guys. They were our, our, our veterans. Yeah, Magic was like the leader on the team, right? Yeah, of course. Magic is magic, right? But then you took, you know, Michael, Scotty, and Charles were at, at the height of their, you know, athletic careers and, and you know, just incredible climb. And everybody was to a degree, but we all, if you mention any guy, you know what his game was. And that's what you, so, you know, Chuck Daly was the ideal coach for that team, but it wasn't like he had to tell you what your role was. Do what you do. <laughs> you know, so. so who is the all, guy you wanted to play with the most? What's that? Who, who, which player were you most excited to go play with the most? Well, you know, I had played with Scotty. I mean, uh, with, with uh, Michael and Patrick. So that was a cool reunion. Magic and Larry were guys I looked up to, man. When I was in yeah. college, I wanted to emulate them. And then hadn't, hadn't compete with all those other guys. David, you know, one of the most revered and, you know, classiest guys of all time. Charles, I had known through college, you know, and he was a – Big time star, John and Carl were really good friends of mine. We competed so up and down that roster, we were all um, competitors, but there was tremendous respect. Now Charles, though, I read that he got cut from the '84 team because he didn't get along with Bob Knight. True or false? True. And, and didn't make the '92 team because people were wondering how he'd get along, or at least how he'd be in international waters, essentially. Yeah, obviously, from day one, you know, Charles, even when he was at Auburn, was outspoken. You know, he had the, you know, the nicknames and everything like that. And he just did everything his way, right? And it worked. It was very unconventional. You know, at that point in time, you didn't see 300-pound power foes in college dunk on everybody. You know, he was, dunk <laughs> he was dunking on Sam Bowie and Melvin Turpin like they were, you know, like they were ch children, you know, just dominating <laughs> Kentucky's incredible front line. Yeah, but in 84 – and I, look, it's a long time ago, so I don't remember exactly the. But he should have been on that team, right? Just no on question. No question. He, was dom he was dominating, dominating. But Charles also, and look, that's a long time ago. '84, the coach runs everything. Like this, and this is the uh, coach of that of that decade of that. Bobby Knight was at the height of his power at that point in time. Seventy was it? Seventy six. They went undefeated, I think. Mm. Around there, they had an undefeated championship team. So. And this discipline was, was – that, that was the way that, you know, uh, people coached. But when Bobby was – that was a long, drawn-out tryout process. We went there in April, and there was probably 90 players invited. Oof. And they, and they – from the, we were there for probably a week, practicing, and the, this is not three times a day, not two, three. Three practice sessions a no day. No load management on this one. No. And then they cut it down to, say, 40. And then they sent you home and brought you back to see if you come back in shape. And then 40 was another week. And then they cut it down to 20. They kept 20 for a while. So Charles was part of that 20. I think they went from 20 to 12 at some point late in the, in the process. But Was he getting in fights? Like, what, was there an incident? That nah, no fights. But, like, you know, you know, obviously Bobby's big – you know, he's a military guy. On time is everything. So, you got, you know, 15 minutes early, you're actually late. So, <laughs> you know, everyone's in the gym early shooting. And, uh, you know, Bobby comes in, 
say, say practice at 11, 10.45, maybe he comes in at 10.46 or something, and Charles is, yells down, hey, coach, if we're going to be on time, you might want to be on time too. <laughs> in front of the whole gym, you know. You know, Bobby, did, you know, at that point, not, not much of a sense of humor, right? Yeah, um, see you, Charles. Yep. <laughs> well, well, and then, then we had um, the first time we had like a, a scrimmage was in, at Indiana University against their alumni. And at that point, that was Isaiah, Mike Woodson. They had a bunch of guys playing in the NBA. And uh, Bob Knight's son, Tim, was like a manager, taking care of the equipment and stuff like that, keeping things organized. And he came in the locker room and said, well, you know, guys, for this exhibition and, and moving forward, you have to be taped. My, my dad said, you got to be taped. You have to wear high tops and you have to wear Converse, which was our sponsor at the time. Something to the effect, Charles is like, well, tell coach, I don't get taped. I wear low tops and I wear Nike. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> oh. And I don't know if that's exactly, I have to, I have to ask Charles, but similar to that. But I think Charles, at some point during those tryouts, was like, I'm in the NBA draft. I'm leaving anyway. I don't really want to yeah. deal with this. But he, he wanted got, to be got, on that he team. Got two, he got two gold medals after that, so he's good. Yeah. And that the, – the legendary stories of Charles Barkley in uh, Monte Carlo and in Barcelona, what do you remember from Charles uh, on the 92 team? Yeah, he just – he was a blast, man. We, he just, he's just a fun-loving guy, always backed up his trash talk with incredible play. I do remember he, he was, I think, the room next to me. Yeah, what is the setup here? So wh where are we? It's like a private money in, 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 uh, in Barcelona. Oh, Monte Carlo. I don't know. Monte Carlo, I don't know. Barcelona, he was next to me. Monte Carlo, even if he had a room, he probably never went there. <laughs> he, he may never have checked into his room. When did you guys find out you were going to Monte Carlo? Was that part of the deal when you made the team? Yeah, that was, that was later. That was, that, that was part of the whole itinerary. We had to go to Portland to qualify, believe it or not. Yep. You played and Cuba then, in, in Portland. Get a term of, term of America. Like 70 points. Yep. And then um, we trained in San Diego, took a little break, and then I think we met in, in New York and then flew to uh, Monte Carlo, trained there for a week, and then went to Barcelona. All right. Let's take a quick break to hear about a podcast that should be in your rotation. Hey, this is Jason Goff, host of the Bulls Talk Podcast, and everybody is talking about Michael Jordan and The Last Dance, but nobody breaks it down better than former Bull Kendall Gill, longtime Bulls insider Casey Johnson, and Bulls outsider Big Dave Watts. I can understand why Michael was upset at Scotty because this was it for them, so why is he doing this and we are trying to win a championship? Subscribe to Bulls Talk right now to get recap podcasts automatically downloaded for free after every episode of The Last Dance. Now, back to the conversation. I know you're skipping over something important. You guys uh, in San Diego and La Jolla, you guys scrimmaged against uh, the NCAA guys. Yeah. And they beat you in the first game. Yeah, allegedly, yeah. <laughs> There's things called scoreboards that can settle this. Yeah, and when, and when your media types walked in, it was 0-0. Zero, zero. <laughs> so the story goes that Chris Chris Weber was in a limo with Larry Bird on the way from the airport going to that game. So Chris Weber's on the NCAA team and Larry Bird and him are just chatting, they're having a good time in the limo. And then when they get out, they go into the hotel, Larry says, "See ya." And by the way, get some sleep because I'm going to bust your tomorrow and you're going to be hurting for the rest of the week. And Chris Weber was like, "All right, let's go." And the next day, I think Allen Houston was in there. Penny Hardaway was in there on the NCAA team. 
and they won that first game. Mm-hmm. Didn't win the second one, but what do you remember from that? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that was an incredible group of young players, first of all. All those guys went on to have incredible careers. I remember uh, a year later in the draft, I remember sitting down with Nelly. He had a few guys on the board, Sean Bradley, Chris Webber, maybe Penny Hardaway. And he goes, what do you think? I said, all I know is one day in San Diego, this guy Webber was the <laughs> best player on the court, including Bird. Michael didn't play. <laughs> You know, mentioned all these great players. I said, and, and for that session, he was the best player on the court. So, mm. um, yeah, it was one of those, you know, one of those scrimmages where, look, young kid, man, that's, that's a dream of a lifetime. And, you know, they came out and they played well. They did. And You, you go from La Hala to Portland for the qualifiers of the, the tournament of, for the Americas. You, you did make to the Olympics, by the way. You did make it. So congratulations on that. Then you go... To Monte Carlo, and apparently you guys had a blue versus white game where it's basically inter-squad scrimmage. And that was the first time I'm imagining you guys got to practice in a real hard scrimmage together. Uh, That must have been just egos through the roof because I can't imagine you played in a scrimmage with that much talent and ego and just competition on the line. Yeah, well, we had scrimmaged the the French national team the night before, didn't play very well was kind of raggedy and Chuck just felt he wanted to get a little tune up before we went, you know, went to the actual Olympic games. And, and Tom, you mentioned earlier how magic was our leader and magic, you know, look, his charisma, his incredible basketball talent, his leadership qualities are off the charts. And Michael, you know, had incredible respect for magic and Larry, but it was just obvious that Mike was by far the greatest player in the world at that point in time. And, um, you know, Magic, I think from a competitive standpoint, too, always went back at Michael, could still back it up, was still a hell of a player. But Magic was on another level. So that, it all kind of culminated in that session where where Magic was, and and Michael basically, was basically a one-on-one competition. And we just, the other four players were kind of participating with them. And, And Magic was not relinquishing the mantle of the man in the NBA till after that scrimmage. Because Michael ripped his heart out in that one. That and just it was just it was just that obvious, you know. It was it was it was just incredible. But, but it was. I this think is was, after my, Magic had HIV, where it was it wasn't Magic in his prime. This was MJ in his prime. Right, not in his prime, but he was still a great, great player and a great leader. Look, they had they they went ninety one. They played against each other in the finals, right? And Michael won that. But look, any competitor, you're not just going to back down. And Magic, you know, one of the greatest of all time. He was still competing. I think it was good for the team, though. And the funny part, and I think I said in that documentary, Larry was, you know, nursing a back injury. Um, so injuries were piling up on him. He probably knew at that point he was retiring that summer. So he would, you know, sit out practice. He was, you know, had the heat, 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 uh, heat pack on the back and things. And don't, I, th- I just kind of glanced over. He was on the side. He was just laughing like, oh, my God. <laughs> They're going back and forth like, this is my league. This is, you know, this is, this is not the 80s no more. I, I looked over Larry's like, it's over, dude. <laughs> this is his league. Man, because you had seen Michael from early on, unlike most players. You, you got to see him, you know, before UNC and then during UNC and then during the 84 team. But what, what set him apart, of course, competition, the, the competitive fire. But even in those games, he was, he was making magic look like he was, he was too old to hang. And so yeah. what was it from Michael? What – 
Because in my head, I'm like, this dude played golf every day. How much of a competitive guy could he have been? He's not like resting. He might be going out to the casino late, you know. But it seemed like when you were out on the floor, it was it was game blouses. Yeah, I think what makes him a freak of nature is all those things you said he did do, but yet still was able to have that incredible energy to be the best player on the floor every time he stepped on the floor. And that's for like every game he ever played. So Mike had the, the unique ability to, whether it was, whether he's playing golf with one person playing in game seven of the NBA finals or trying out for 1984 Olympic team in Bloomington, Indiana in a closed gym that was the only thing that was going on, and it was the biggest thing that was going on. The what was he more competitive about, the golf, cards, or, uh, or basketball? Basketball, but the other was, wasn't much far behind. You know what so I'm saying? He never turned off. Whatever he did, he was going to win. It didn't matter. But, you know, I, I think by far basketball because that's what he loved. But Michael, you know, like you said, I saw him, you know, pretty much throughout his whole career, and, and not up close and personal, like – a teammate in the NBA, but I watched the incredible evolution, but he was always a very intelligent player. First of all, fundamentally sound, well coached. And then you add that out of this world of athleticism and out of this world, competitive spirit, you put that all together. <laughs> Not many guys have everything. Some guys have great athleticism and they don't have the desire or they have great desire. They don't have, he had it all together and, and brought it every single day, every single practice session. You know, so there was not a difference from him practicing, like, and playing game seven. And that, that's a unique quality, and it, that's an intensity and a focus that isn't, you know, you don't see much. Who are you closest with on the team? That team, we started, um, so obviously, when, you know, when practicing in the games, you get your regular routine and you kind of do your thing. But when, when we got to Barcelona, I think we were playing our games at local time, like 9.30 or 10 o'clock. It was, it was a late start uh, local time. We weren't having shoot-arounds. We, we had a lot of free time. Um, and on off days, we were off. You know, so like you said, Mike was playing 36, maybe 72 holes a day. He was doing his golf thing. We wound up <laughs> no, going – No, not 72. Come on. I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> um, crazy. He was, but, playing, he was playing like 18 before practices or before games. Like he was – Yeah, no doubt. Wow. Yeah. It, it, I'm telling you, it, it, it's, he's, he's incredible, dude. And then I think in the dimension, and you didn't really see him sleep much. He was always going somewhere. He was always doing something. We started going – we had, we had a gym reserved for practice, but we weren't using it. So, like, we, I was going out there with Patrick and Larry and David. Quite, you know, we'd go out there just to kill some time, right, just mess around, get, get a little workout, get a little sweat, so you're not just sitting in a hotel all day. I wasn't golfing at that time, so – so we were kind of – I got tight with Patrick more so than I had you – know, I knew him well, of course. but yeah. And it's been quite a bit of time with Larry, too, because we were going out there just to kind of kill, kill a few hours during the day. It was, uh, it was described as you guys were the Beatles plus Elvis. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that week in Barcelona, or two weeks, the rival was, was huge and getting to the hotel. But each day it just picked up – capacity of people picked up. The, it went from, you know – cop cars around the bus to helicopters above the bus helicopters above the bus it kind of just following us to the arena and then the, the, the gold medal game or one of the games i'm not quite one of the games so that we were getting the police escort and, and the roads you know pretty crowd or whatever so they would just block and we were just taking the, the 
you know, would be like the fast track lane, which they would just make when we just jet through everything and get to the arena. One time we went past our opponent. They were sitting in traffic. We were, went right by them. <laughs> we'll see you at the gym. Hey, see you, Spain. See ya. We'll do a little stretching for you. It's such a flex moment right there. Just, um, yeah, Charles, Charles said at one point, it was like, you go to the pool and it's like bikini, Uzi, bikini, Uzi. Just the security there was it, it, kind of frightening almost. Like, geez, like these guys, it, you, I guess you have to have that kind of security. Yeah, and that was obviously pre-9-11. So we, we weren't as, as um, probably aware of some things that were going on. But yeah, it was, it was a lot. But I, I felt safe. I, I felt safe. And then, we, like you said, it was, there was just people around us all the time anyway. Yeah. The Nike stuff was – you're a Nike guy. Yeah. Um, and so was Michael, of course. But I believe that the, the ring ceremony or the medal ceremony at the end, the jackets were rebought. And apparently Michael had pinned a flag over his shoulder – so American flag over his shoulder so that the Reebok logo would not show on TV when they got the, when you guys got the medals. Did you feel like, I mean, of course, shoot the shoe influence, the shoe companies, it's so much bigger now, but back then, how much was the business side of what it meant to be in Barcelona, you know, hang around and influence just kind of the, the environment there and the, the, the vibe around the team? How much was just like the, the business side of what it meant to be over there? Yeah, I mean, look, there was a lot of opportunities that opened up for everybody, more more for others, and, and rightfully so, right? So that's just the way it goes. But, you know, the one thing that, that uh, Magic and Larry and Michael always did a great job of, and I thought Mar Magic and Larry, you know, when they started all the endorsements and things, they always kept basketball first. Endorsements always behind what they had to do. So that never – I never felt it got in the way. Um, look, Michael's, you know, his, his brand is just, you know, growing, growing, but that never superseded him competing to win. Now that, that, that in the games, there would be players who were asking for uh, pictures being taken while they're in the game. There was a story that like magic is backing down someone and from another team, whether it was Angola or whatever it is. And as he's getting back down, or as he's backing down the defender, the defender's asking a guy on the team on the sideline, you know, take the picture now, take the picture now. That, that probably had never happened before, right? In your career where, like, players on the other team are waiting for autographs and pictures taken and shoes. That must have been crazy. Yeah, and, and, and funny, too. It was, it was actually like, – just, it just made you laugh. You know, the, the, Lithuan, the Lithuanian team was there, and Sharunas was on that team, so I was really good friends with him. Sabonis, we all knew, uh, but a lot of their guys were on the sidelines with their cameras, and you know, for those, it was a once in a lifetime. And you know, David Stern at that point in time would tell us this is going to have a huge impact on 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 the globalization of basketball. And at, you know, at the time, you're like, yeah, people probably. don't realize you guys weren't allowed to, were not allowed to play, but you, the NBA players did not play in the Olympics until '92. Correct. So he he, he had zero he had to hundred. He had that vision. And he talked about it in real time, which you don't see much. Um, but lo and behold, you know, here we are now, a third of our NBA players are foreign born. And a lot of them, much like, you know, when you grew up in the neighborhood, when I was a kid, right? So 
you know, Tiny Archibald. I, I used to see him in the summertime. And it, it just brought a little, your dream a little closer that you actually could see someone from where you came from made it. So now those young kids in Spain and, and, and the, the kids in, in Europe, they could see it up close and personal. So the dream is not that far away. So they got to almost touch their dream. And it did. It wound up having a huge impact. But the players that we played against, they were watching us from afar also. Saul said he, he watched that and that inspired him to work on his game. You know, when- that, that and also over time what's happened too is the fear factor has, has gone away, right? So when you get to – at that point, it was still a lot of fear, right? They didn't know they compete, can, compete at that level. But now you, you practice with a guy. You get to know him. And all of a sudden you feel like you can do it. So breaking down that, uh, that barrier was big for those international players. But you guys put a hurting on the opponents. Like there was like maybe Croatia in the I think it was in the in the gold medal game. You guys were maybe behind at halftime. But like just about every game was a blowout. You averaged the average margin of victory was forty three point eight points. You beat on average every opponent by forty four points. Did you feel bad at sometimes, Molly? Like when you're going against Angola, or was it just like, hey, I'm a competitor. I'm, I want to I want to beat these dudes as much as yeah, I think what I remember, Tom, more is not so much being concerned. Um, we knew we were going to win, so that wasn't the concern. <laughs> and it wasn't to embarrass or to build up that score. It was to play flawless basketball, to, to really play as well as we could as a team, not just accumulate uh, stats. Is to set a high bar of quality of play. and. Yeah. We did talk about that. Let's, you know, keep turnovers down, share the ball, let everyone get a piece of the pie. And, 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 and that's what happened. And, and Was there like, hey, M- Michael, you're not going to be allowed to play with your right hand this quarter or this for the next 10 Well, minutes. Chuck Daly, I, th- I think Chuck Daly started a different starting five every game, I think. I, th- I think so, from what yeah, I remember. You started some games, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think, but I think every, everyone, I think he started a different lineup every single game. And everyone, you know, got to play different roles. It was just play at a high level and play together. And that's kind of sounds simple, but when you do it and you got great players, that's what happens. Is there ever been an Olympic team since that you think could compete with you guys in the 92? Well, you know, the fact it was the first time ever, that alone, right? So it's an original. It's never, never duplicated. Um, and then all those guys – I mean, there was the Redeem team in 2008. Then there was LeBron and uh, Kobe D. Wade and Melo in 2012, uh, Beijing. But I think, I mean, 44 points a game. I, I ran the numbers. I think you guys averaged 44-point margin of victory. And the 2008 Redeem team, which a lot of people point as the, the best competitor to you guys, it was like 29 points a game, the, the margin. You guys just like doubled it. So, like, obviously, because you guys were so great, rising tide floats all boats and all the international teams, it became a global game. And so now Spain is, you know, looking eye to eye to Team USA, much thanks to to you guys. But I just think from a competitive standpoint, there there was no Olympic team better than you guys, not just because you guys won by 44 points, but... You know, the other teams, they had a lot of guys who were younger um, in their career. So when LeBron was on the Redeem team in 2008, I mean, he was, he was just starting out on his reign. Like he hadn't, uh, he hadn't won an MVP yet in his career. Whereas you guys, you had MJ, Magic, Larry, David, 
Patrick. I mean, you go on and on and it just, just seemed like you guys had established yourselves in your career and you, you guys were the biggest names in the sport. You're going to get no argument from me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Isaiah. Isaiah uh, didn't make the team, even though Chuck was the, was the coach. And it's rumored that, uh, that Michael Jordan had a hand in that. So how did the whole team try out, work out, and did you get a sense of why Isaiah didn't make the team? Yeah, so, but, you know, unlike 84, it wasn't a tryout. It was a selection. So it was a phone call that never came up within the team dynamic. You know what I mean? I'm, look, there was a lot of talk about it outside, but as far as from the, from the time we reported, any practice session, any, it just never came up. And look, historically, we know where Isaiah Thomas, one of the greatest players of all time. Um, and there's been stories and interviews about that whole situation. But it, but it was not – I never remember it being mentioned once. Molly, you're supposed to say, yes, Michael Jordan uh, put an end to that. You're supposed to say that. Yeah, but I got a call. I, oh, I got – I might be I might be the only guy who got a I said yes right away. Everyone else was saying who else is on the team? I'm like, yeah, I'm in. <laughs> when, do you, when do you need me? I'll be there. Uh, Shaq wasn't on that team. Um, trying to think of other people who uh, it, who could have been on that team. I think John Stockton broke, he kind of hurt, he got hurt right before, and it was questionable whether he was gonna do it or not, but he ended up going with Carl Malone. Yeah. Any other guys that you were like, ah, oh, I wish I wish I got to play with him on that team. Christian Leitner was on the team as an homage to the whole amateur. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was just coming out of Duke, winning two championships at Duke. But any other players that, that you had wished in that opportunity that you could have played with or you wanted to see what it was like to play on that stage in 92? No, I, I, I couldn't say that, no. I mean, it's like anything else. Like when you name all stuff, there's always people left off, right? And a lot of those guys, you either get a chance later on or, you know, before NBA players were able to play, it was just the luck of the draw, luck of timing, whether you, you, your year in college coincided with that, you know, four-year cycle of the Olympics. So, nah, it, it, you know, we just got focused and moved on. It wasn't really I, – I, I didn't anyway. I'm sure there was a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Not as much – there wasn't as much social media. So if you weren't, like, in it, you were – you know, yeah. if you weren't in it, you weren't in it. I had nothing to do with that. Monte Carlo. Tell me about Monte Carlo. I've never been, but tell me about what it was like for you as a 26-year-old, 28-year-old going to Monte Carlo and dinner one time where with the Prince Albert or something like that. Yeah. And so like for me, I had never been there either. So it was a new experience for me. At that point in time, I had just had my first child. So he was probably like a month old. Wow. So you went, to, you went across the, the ocean Crossed the pond with a one-month-old? Like, you yeah. brought him to the world, tons, like, oh, peace. Tons of kids on that trip. Everyone had their kids, which really helped. It really was really cool. Yeah, so, I mean, it was a new experience, hanging at the pool, going to the beach, and we had, like, you know, hour practice a day. Chuck kept it light. And, um, yeah, it was cool, man. It was, it was, it was a blast, man. We, we just, Do you remember that dinner with Prince Albert or what that Yeah, was? yeah. And it, it, it was like we had to have a little – sit down before because it was certain customs that I think you don't shake hands you don't touch prints things like that this is pre-coronavirus so, so yeah, no no just but it was their custom it was their customs. their custom you can't shake his hand you can't don't, don't touch you know like you know pat him on the back or things like that and so who screws this up the most who on the team is just like I I, I don't know my wife's pointing at me but I don't I, <laughs> you're I, Brooklyn I, kid you're I, like hey I, get over I, here I, give I, me a I, hug I, <laughs> 
my wife says verbally, Charles, I might have gave him a little Brooklyn. I might have given him a little hug around, you know, a little, give, him a little headlock, <laughs> give him a little headlock. Yeah, and then Carl Malone, he's from the country too. Like, yeah. This must have been a different world. We might have changed the customs. They might have said, you know what? <laughs> yeah, you say no, Carl Malone. Like, tell Carl Malone he's doing something wrong. And then let's see how that goes, that conversation goes. Yeah, he, he likes physicality. Yeah. So, 92, Dream Team is done. What was the rest of that summer like? Did you just chill after that? Was it just exhausting or did you have such a good time out there that it was almost rejuvenating to be a part of it? Yeah, no, it wasn't exhausting at all. Physically, it was not taxing. It was fun. It was rejuvenating. It really was. And, and, and it was a lot of excitement because, again, it was the first time, right? So it was, it was this new adventure and it went, it went beautifully. It was, it was a total success for the NBA. Uh, I think the Olympics, it, was, it, it helped the Olympic uh, movement in general, just the, you know, the popularity and the, and the publicity and all that stuff. And, you know, we got home probably mid-August, plenty of time to, you know, rejuvenate and rest. And, and now you've got these incredible memories that, you know, almost 30 years later, people love to relive. So it's, I mean, it's a blessing. Who's the best player you played against in 92? Drazen up there? Yeah, Dra- Drazen, yep. He was up there. And see, he, he was, he's the player I was talking about. So he had played in the NBA. He had, a, yeah, he had that yeah. confidence that he could compete. Kukoc didn't have that yet. You know what I mean? So that's, that's a hurdle you have to go over yourself. Someone, someone can't give that to you. And then Watching that, those games with Croatia, like Drazen, you could tell he belonged. Like, he went right at MJ. Like, not afraid whatsoever of MJ. Also, you know, he was in Portland sitting, playing behind Clyde and Terry Porter before he went to New Jersey. So he was going through practices, sitting on the bench. That's the process he went through to get to that point Then became an all-star in New Jersey. But he – hey, that guy was a big-time player from when he was a little boy. I remember hearing a story about him in the 80s I'm going to say, I don't know exactly when, so he's a few years younger than me, maybe like 87, 88, whatever. My coach, my college coach, Coach Karnaseka, took a Big East All-Star team over to uh, Yugoslavia at the time when they were together. Mm-hmm. And I remember him coming back and saying, you know, Mo, we played against this kid in, in Croatia uh, on, on, the, uh, on the Adriatic. We played outdoors on the, on the Adriatic Sea. The wind was blowing, and this, guy, this guy scored 48 <laughs> And it was Petrovic. That's crazy. An outdoor court. Jump shots. You're not taking jump shots. The wind blowing, and he just schooled all these Big East All-Stars. He gave him 48. <laughs> wow. Draws an unbelievable player. Like, uh, I remember when I was a kid, I, I went to – I went to – was it uh, TJ Maxx or something like that? And on the shelf, there was a Drazen Authentic from the Nets – a Drazen Petrovic jersey from the Nets, and I still have it. And I was like, man, do people not know Drazen, how good he was? For it to be, like, on the, on the shelf at this uh, at TJ Maxx, I was like, I'm getting this. And I could probably sell this jersey on eBay for, like I – think, I think he had an older brother, I think, played on the 84 team. I think. I'm going to look that up. I'm pretty sure he had an older brother who went into coaching, but I think he was on the 84 team. Drazen's older brother? His older brother, yeah. Man. Nasty. It's so apparent that Tony was not ready at that point. And, and Scotty said as much. There was a quote from Scotty Pippen being like, you know, he might be a good player one day, but he's in the right league. Tony Kukoc, he's in the right league right now. 
So yeah, man, it's, it's going to be exciting to watch. I'm guessing the Croatia game is probably the, the final, the gold medal game is the one that stands out to you, but any particular moment or play or game that will always stick with you from 92 uh, dream team. Well, I, I enjoyed playing against the, the other active NBA players like on uh Detlef Schrempf was there. Uwe Blob may have been on a team, a guy I played with. And, of course, the Lithuanian team. I was really close with Sharunas. Yep. And, you know, that, that documentary, I'm sure people have seen that. The other dream team, it's an, they, it was an incredible thing that they did. You know, they, as, they were the last team to win the, uh, before the Olympics were over for the pros in 88. Sharunas' Russian team beat us in the final, uh, in the semifinal. But they won the gold medal in 88. And then – Four years later, they gained their independence and they put together their own team basically from scratch. Runish was basically the owner, the GM, the best player, mm. the fundraiser. He, he, in the Bay Area, he was raising money through the Grateful Dead with the tie-dye shirts. And in that short period of time, they went and got a bronze medal, which is an incredible accomplishment. So seeing those other NBA players that we knew was fun. I mean, but all in all, like you said, the culmination, when you see guys like Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, David, these guys who have done every, everything in the game of basketball, and that sticks out as one of their greatest memories, that says something. So I, was talking, I, was call, I was on a Zoom call about two weeks ago with uh, – it was just like one of these athletes getting together. Jim Brown was on it, Jerry West, Oscar Robertson, Marcus Allen. All these different athletes, we're just on there just, you know, just talking, telling stories because everyone's confined. And Jerry West and Oscar Robinson both said it was one of, their, one of the greatest memories they have in life. So the Olympics is a separate, it's a separate thing, man. You know, no matter, no matter what you – so when you get that medal and the national anthem's playing, there's nothing like it. You can't compare it to anything else. Wait, 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 wait. You, you're bearing the lead here. You were on a Zoom call with Jim Brown and Jerry West – and who else was on this call? How many of you guys were there? Jim Brown, Oscar, Jerry West, Marcus Allen, Cedric the Entertainer. <laughs> no. Wait, what's who, who else was on that call, Liz? Rick Barry, Tim Hardaway, Ozzy sure? Smith, Joe Morgan, Jim Brown. I said Jim Brown. Jim Brown. Yeah, it was cool. Wait, I'm sorry. You got Ozzy. I'll get you on next time. You can. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. I said that. I said, you know what? You know what a reporter would do to get on this call? Oh, my God. Yeah. But like, give me stories. Give me like, who was the first one to show up? Who was the la- who had the worst tech problems? Who had the who couldn't get their audio working? Like, give me details. Uh, yes, there was Sam Jones with the audio. Sam Jones was awesome. Joe Morgan. Joe Morgan came on late and just dominated. Oh, because he's he's, oh, he's great though. He was awesome. He just got, all you know, time great uh, commentator. He's been doing. Jerry, listen to Jerry and Oscar. That, that stuck out to me. I'm like these guys are you know they've done everything and they they talked about that Olympics like a lot. Like with the '92 or or just no, in 19, general their team 1960 their team 1960 was regarded as the best before you guys showed up in '92. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So uh, how many? So it was Brady Bunch, right? At least nine Zoom Zoom. Yeah. Well, yeah, you just, there was two screens of boxes. Max people at your max. How many people were on? 24, maybe. Something like that. Who invited you to this? A guy in L.A. that does a lot of um, fundraising and marketing. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. So next time, I need the details. The there, there was another one on uh, Monday, but I was out biking, and, and the guy's tech, yo, dude, you got to zoom in. 
Mike Tyson's on. <laughs> <laughs> I was up on Mount Dabla. I couldn't get in. I was up. I was up mountain biking. You can't be mountain biking anymore. Gotta you, be, dude. You had a chance to be I on the Zoom with Mike Tyson. I have my, pro I have my priorities. Wow. <laughs> of, of the short list of people that I would want to be on a Zoom with and, and not be on the top of a mountain without cell service. Like you must, did you get the message while you're up there or did you only get it when you got back? Oh, so, so I'm on there, right? Oh yeah. So I'll, I'll turn to you. Let me see. Oh, here it is. Join the Zoom meeting. Anyway. Yeah. I can't find it. Here I'm yeah. thinking that this is the first Zoom I, that you've been on that I'm, I'm making sure I get the password right. Zoom's where it's at, dude. Man, that's legend. Like, the legends of sports so, on that. Well, I, I have met Jim Brown one time. I was doing ESPN stuff. I got on like a late Southwest flight from Oakland to LA, 1030, the last flight out. There's like seven people on the flight. He's on there with two. He was coming from one of his like meetings with the gang members. Yeah. Got on the South, got on the South, the empty Southwest flight, sat next to him and chatted with him. It was cool as Wow. That's incredible. That's incredible. Wait, wait. So you had Tim Hardaway. Did you have the, the triumvirate, the run TMC with you? Mitch didn't make it. Mitch. Oh, that was, that was a great time when we, we did that pod together. Uh, yeah, that was awesome, dude. Pod. We'll, do we'll do it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The last time I saw you, was on set for that March 1st game against Wizards, Warriors-Wizards, and we were like, are we going to finish this season out? Like, are games going to be canceled? So, so March, March 11th, I was in Fox Studio doing the Big East tournament. On that night? That day, no, they, they did the first night. We did, we did a doubleheader Wednesday night. Thursday, we came in early. They started the St. John's Creighton game, and at halftime, shut it down. They came in and goes, they just said, everyone got, you know, got to go home. Like, what? And that? Yeah, that's right, because Rudy Gobert tested positive in the NBA shutdown Wednesday night, but you continued doing the games at the Garden, yes? Okay, so a week early, they said, don't come to the garden. We're going to do it in L.A. We don't want you traveling. You can go. And they actually even said at Fox, they said, if you don't feel like coming to L.A., we'll get someone else. You don't need to travel area. But uh, I, they, were, they, they knew they were covering themselves already. They knew what was going on. Well, it looks like you're doing well. I love the beard. It's, uh, it's looking good. And you know what? Uh, stay safe. Great chatting and go through all these stories. That you, got, you got my number. You need anything, just reach out. Yeah, the Zoom details. That's all I need. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Molly. Yeah, Tom. See you, bud. All right, that'll do it for this week's episode of The Haber Show. I want to thank Chris Mullen for joining me and the miraculous beard that he shared with all of us on the video pod of this uh, conversation. I want to thank him, all of you out there. I hope you're staying safe and healthy during this time. And please go tell all your friends, your family, your enemies about The Haber Show. Go subscribe, rate, and review. It would be a big help. And go listen to previous episodes on the pod. We've got Ethan Strauss, who wrote The Victory Machine, this great book about the Warriors' rise and fall of their dynasty. Go check that out, as well as conversation with Shane Battier on Kobe Bryant. All right, until next time on The Haber Show. <laughs>